14th of January and uh, next week we will be in a different situation and I don't even know yet what room uh, this class is going to meet in. I suspect it's going to be the church office. Um, that's what I, but I don't know that for sure. Okay, and it may be in the kitchen which wouldn't be that much different than what we're doing right now in the fellowship hall slash kitchen. So, uh, either way, uh, it'll, uh, it'll happen. And so, the, the weather does look a little 40% chance of rain, but I don't think that should bother a lot. Uh, so, all right, we're in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. And uh, today... We are going to consider just the first two verses of 1 John chapter 2. And uh, how about if Krista and Brenda read those two verses? My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Well, in our previous lesson, we considered the conditions of fellowship, because that's really what uh, John was writing about. These things write I unto you. He said that uh, in verse number is it five. This is the message we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So uh, John was very concerned about the fellowship and uh, if John and his audience, which uh, I think is uh, almost certainly not just the church at Ephesus, if you, uh, what is it, the Aegean Sea it separates Turkey and Greece, and they're over there on the Asia side as opposed to the uh, European side. Uh, if, uh, they called that the Roman province of Asia, the seven churches of Asia Minor and Revelations 2 and 3. They're all right there. And uh, there, although there were other churches uh, that had uh, other cities that had churches that are mentioned in the New Testament than, than those seven, um, I think that John was writing to all of them. And uh, um, if John and his audience were not having sweet fellowship, then it, was, it would only be as they were all walking in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not as we saw in the previous lesson, as hypocrites. Uh, that's when you say one thing, do another thing. Or the holier-than-thou attitude, those are the ones that said, hey, I don't sin, I'm, I'm too good to sin. And then there was the ones who said, there is no sin. We all just have preferences. That's humanism. So as long uh, as, as uh, we're walking in the light, then we can have fellowship one with another and with the Lord Jesus Christ. So our text this morning is the capstone of that previous discussion concerning fellowship. It, I, I, I think that it probably should have been, these two verses should have been the, the final two verses of, of chapter 1. Uh, and we know, of course, that the uh, verse and chapter divisions in the Bible are not part of inspiration. They weren't put in until around the early 1500s, maybe late 1400s, something like that. I, actually, I think it's the mid-1500s. It was 
after um, the first uh, few translations started kind of by Decidus Erasmus and, and I think it was uh, Robert Stevenson that was maybe the first one, I'm not sure about that, but uh, anyways, it was a Bible publisher like him that put those verse and chapter divisions in. So long, 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 long after the inspiration. And so sometimes they're put in in places that just, they don't really lend to um, understanding the scripture right because they make you think there's some sort of artificial division in there that, that probably was not meant to be there. So uh, in this case, uh, we're considering these two verses separately. I, they, they, uh, they really belong to the, the previous chapter. And it's a necessary application of the previous uh, truth that was presented. Truth always has to be applied. If it, if it isn't applied, if, if we only have truth up here in our heads, but it never affects what our hands do, and where our feet take us, and everything else external, if it doesn't affect uh, us on the outside, then it hasn't done us any good at all. And then we become like the Dead Sea, you know, Dead Sea is always taking stuff in, but it never, there, there's no way for it to go out, and then all that good fresh water that goes into the Dead Sea becomes polluted poisonous water. And that's what will happen to a person that takes in truth, but never allows the truth to have application in their life. They never use the truth the way that God intended us to use it, and uh, the results won't be good. That's how cults get started. That's how Christians become all puffed up and prideful. Uh, and nothing good ever comes from not applying truth. So John had shown light on our tendency to deviate towards darkness. And uh, of course, before we were saved, we all were in darkness. We were all of our father, the devil, and uh, we sinned and we liked it. Uh, but even after we get saved, our flesh didn't become redeemed. We still have uh, that tendency to want to do the things that are not best for us. And so he wanted his beloved friends to be on guard against that seductive tendencies. And the best way to avoid sin is to stay close to Christ. That's the best way. And He is fellowship's champion. That's what I call uh, this lesson. We saw the conditions for fellowship, but he's fellowship's champion. Now, notice I didn't say that if we want to um, stay in the light, we have to keep all these rules. Because we saw in our study in, in Romans, you can keep rules in the flesh. Somebody, it, the Roman Catholics, they're really good at keeping rules. So are Muslims. And so are a lot of different cults, you know. The Mormons, they don't even drink coffee. There's, there's all kinds of rules. And fundamental Baptists are pretty good at it too. And I know because I went to three different uh, fundamentalist schools. They all had, they all had a big, heavy uh, rule book of things that you weren't allowed to do. Um, but it's not because we keep rules. You can keep rules in your flesh, but you can never please God in the flesh. And uh, if we are near Christ, then we're going to be in the light. 
And uh, I think that it must be concluded that the aged apostles' fellowship with the original audience of this epistle had to have been strained somewhat. And therefore, their, their fellowship with Christ Jesus was also potentially at risk. Not to say that they could lose their salvation, but uh, just as a parent can have uh, uh, an unhappy relationship with their own children who are not doing right, even so God has an unhappy relationship with his children on earth that are not doing right. And uh, so anything that, uh, uh, any time rather, our fellowship with fellow believers is poor, it's not good, that's just how our fellowship with the Son of God is going to be. If, if there, even if there's just one person, even if there's one person, just to see, just to see her makes me so angry. That's that's what somebody said to me once. I don't, I don't want to go to church because she might be there, and if she's there, it makes me so angry. Well, that unforgiving spirit is hindering your fellowship with the Son of God, and it's funny to me how how certain people uh, fuss and feud with each other, and and then they both leave church. If one of them left church, don't you think the other would be, oh good, she's gone, I can go back to church. They both leave. It's because their fellowship with Christ is not right. That's why. So the Spirit, the Spirit's uh, message then through the uh, Apostle John here in this epistle is an amazing example of profundity. Uh, despite the economy of words. And, and uh, the more... There were so many things that, that went through my mind as I considered these two verses. We're, we're, uh, men were in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 of 1 John. And uh, so, so many things, I, I couldn't even uh, begin to put them all down. Uh, but a few things, and we're not going to get all of them done today, I'll just tell you that. Um, but I sent this out, and if I don't have your email address, and and you want to receive these things, uh, get it to me or, or Sister Jen, and then I'll send you the, the script here of this. But in uh, John 13.33, uh, first of all, we see their identification. The, he's writing to my little children. Uh, our Lord addressed his disciples as little children in John 13.33. And so that word in the Greek is, it implies familial relationship. It's used for my little children. Um, but through Christ's usage in John 13 and through John's seven times in, in 1 John and uh, I think in the other, uh, also in the other uh, 2nd and 3rd John, uh, in his epistles, John also says, my little children. I think we can understand that uh, close spiritual relationship is is also implied and uh, and I think indeed when when the Lord used this designation for his disciples the command to them was that you love one another as I have loved you that ye love one another and so um, you he wanted them to love like they were family like they were brothers and sisters, like they were all part of the same family. 
And, uh, you know, children, when you think about it, they're kind of interesting, aren't they? I was thinking about it. They're innocent, even while being depraved sinners. I mean, you look at a little child, and at one moment you just want to hug it, and the next moment you want to <laughs> like that, you know? Because, because they're innocent, even while being depraved sinners. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. Um, but they're, they're capable of unconditional love at one moment and unimaginable uh, selfishness the very next. And children are, are awfully similar, I think, to sheep. If you've never taken care of sheep, I guess you'll have to trust me on this. Uh, but they're very dependent creatures, sheep and children. And uh, they're also easy prey for wolves when they're separated from those who have the responsibility to care for them. Both are likely, sheep and children, to overestimate their own strength. You know how little kids are, you, you're holding their hand, no, no, no. Or they want to hold on to your hand, but they don't want you to hold on to their hand. Like that. <laughs> the, the, they also, um, I think neither one did God intend to exist independently. God didn't intend either sheep or children to be independent. They both do better in the fellowship of their own kind. A child that is never among other children, that is only with its parents, it never, that child is probably not going to grow up very well adjusted. Um, and and uh, certainly, it makes it more difficult uh, for them because we, we're all, God intended all of us uh, to be in a relationship where we can be loved and where we can love. And uh, I, I, when children are isolated or when sheep are isolated, they have no one to love and no one to love them. And uh, so they just, they, they're not, that's not good for them. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ loved little children. And we studied that um, a couple of months ago in Matthew 18, rather extensively. He rebuked the disciples for preventing little children from coming unto him and receiving his blessing. Whereas the little children are defined in that passage by those that trust in him. And so it could be an adult believer, or it could be a little children. It really doesn't make any difference. The, the instruction here that John gives is for those who he considered to be his own children begotten in the ministry. And Paul had children like that too. Paul called Timothy his son in the faith. He called Titus his son in the faith. And uh, I, I, there are certain people who just are like my children in the faith. And uh, I'm very thankful for what God has done in their lives. And uh, even though I'm a pastor, and I guess maybe people would expect a pastor to have people like that, yet, you know, my wife, when she was uh, saved, she was discipled by the, the, the uh, people that Mandy is house-sitting their house in, in Minnesota now. And... And maybe they looked at Brenda 
as being their daughter in the faith a little bit. They didn't lead her to the Lord, but, but they, they were the ones that were really responsible for her growing in her faith. And uh, so, uh, are there anyone like that, that looks up to you in, in your life, that maybe to them you're like a spiritual parent, or if not a parent, maybe at least a, a guide or a mentor? Relationships like that, they don't, they don't happen by accident. And just as God is active in this world, we need to be active both in soul winning and in discipleship. And of course, those things imply the acceptance of, of responsibility. Because children take a tremendous amount of uh, our time. And you have to care for them. The children are not just going to grow up possessing good character and discipline unless they have been trained and taught and corrected. It's pretty easy to hand somebody you've never met and you know you'll probably never see again a gospel track or some piece of gospel literature and walk away. Or even to explain the gospel to a stranger. And, and you might desire with all your heart that they would receive that gospel, but it, it takes considerably more commitment to take someone who's a babe in Christ and bring them to the point where they become a soldier of Jesus Christ, where they become a church member who is exercising their spiritual gift, who is edifying others who's doing everything that Christ wants them to do. And uh, so it takes a lot of responsibility. And some people are willing to put in a certain, this much effort, or maybe this much effort, but they, they're, at some point, they don't want to do any more than that. And when, you know, when you're a parent, there is no limit. You, you know, you have to be there for them when they need you. And uh, so uh, that's, uh, I think that all of that is implied in John's words when he says my little children John was willing to be there for him. maybe 85 90 perhaps even more than 90 years old when he wrote these words and he wasn't writing just as you know some old man I'm old you're young you're your children I'm wise he, I think that all of, all of that acceptance of responsibility, all of that love for them, all of that desire for their growth was all uh, implied in those words. And then, then the, we see their instruction. These things write I unto you. So John was writing to the churches in and around Ephesus in the Roman province of Asia. Um, you can look at a Bible map. Maybe your Bible might have one. But the, almost certainly all the seven churches addressed in, in uh, Revelations chapter 2 and 3 received a copy of this, of 1 John. And uh, although John was the penman, what he wrote was the product of the Holy Spirit of God. And that often gets overlooked when you go to commentaries or uh, hear sermons. And we should not think, though, that John was inspired. None of the apostles were inspired. Because what's inspired is going to be inspired forever. And uh, we know that, that all of them sinned. Even, even Paul. Paul, you know, for a while he struggled with, an, with a, whether or not he could 
forgive and trust John Mark after John Mark blew them off and departed from them on the first missionary journey. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't the men that were inspired. The words they penned were inspired. And so the process of inspiration, uh, let me just say that uh, something about that. The process of inspiration did not take place years after John passed away. Because there are a lot of Bible teachers, and if you go to your average Protestant Bible school or seminary, that's what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you that there was a period of time, it took all of these years before, uh, before the majority of Christian people recognized what would be the canon of Scripture, and that point it became part of the Word of God, which is considered inspired. Uh, that is that is completely wrong. There are there are certain heretics who are gaining influence that suggest the Bible is nothing more than writings that survive the ages of time and the influence of competing theological views. And we talked a, a couple weeks ago about docetism. Uh, docetism. Uh, is is a kind of Gnosticism that says Jesus only appeared to exist, but he was a fan, phantasm, or he, he was just some mirage. You could see him, but you couldn't actually touch him. He wasn't material, because material things are intrinsically evil, and spiritual things are intrinsically good, which is crazy, because there's so many spiritual things in this world that are, that are unclean and corrupt, but it's you know, leaving that aside, uh, these Bible teachers will say that if Docetism had a better influencer, then John is the one who would be considered a heretic today, who was the troublemaker of the early church. And, and but, uh, you know, finally he got shut up and, and uh, because, because uh, uh, Srentos, you know, he... He had the power of God on him, and he shut John down. That's what they say, uh, that, that John would be the one who is the Antichrist and not Sorrentos. And so uh, some of these guys teaching this graduated from fundamentalist schools, and, and uh, they teach, there are many who teach the Bible is nothing more than the product of chance. It just survived time, and its spokesman ended up uh, being heeded more than the people that they argued against. And some of these guys uh, were trained in fundamentalist institutions of higher learning. I'm not going to mention the name of the schools, but the professors in those schools would not at all agree with them, except on one thing. The professors in those schools deny the perfect providential preservation of Scripture. They absolutely agree with us on inspiration. They would agree with us that John was not inspired. The words that he wrote were inspired of God. But what they don't agree with us on is that God has providentially and perfectly preserved his word from the moment that they were given, and that those words have always been available for God's people. In other words, that they weren't buried in the sand, hidden from any human eye for 500 or 1,000 years, or hidden in some monastery where nobody saw it for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
Uh, that's what they think happened. They think that there's still parts of Scripture buried in clay jars in desert places or, you know, hidden away for them to find and for them to study and for them to give their approval and say, yes, this is Scripture. They actually believe that whole books of the Bible could possibly have been lost. Whole books of inspired scripture that nobody has seen or perhaps even that nobody ever will see. And uh, so uh, those men, uh, they believe that a certain percentage of the Bible, it's anywhere from uh, some will say as small as 2 or 3%, others will say as much as 15% of the Bible, uh, is doubtful at best. It's questionable. We can't be sure that this is really scripture or not. And uh, since they lack the faith to believe that God could providentially preserve his word as he promised that he would do in so many places, it is left up to them, the high and mighty scholars, to rediscover the original through redactive studies and human rationalism. The same way that they would try to rediscover what Homer wrote or what Heraclides, Heraclides, Anyways, uh, all of those ancient writers. And uh, John would certainly disagree. And uh, doubtless he agreed that not one jot or one tittle of inspired scripture would ever pass away and that God's people would always have a perfectly preserved word available to them. And it's better for us, I think, to avoid professors and pastors and other Bible teachers who are convinced that they're smarter than others and that they possess some sort of special knowledge by virtue of their higher intelligence than us. And uh, they, so they feel at liberty to tell you which parts of the Bible can be trusted and which parts of the Bible should be doubted. And uh, I don't have any time for preachers like that. I don't have any time. I hear that, I turn them off. I turn them off uh, uh, because they need to be turned off. I don't call them names. I don't spit at them. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not unkind towards them. Um, but, but any part uh, that God has preserved of his word should be trusted. It should be believed. It should be correctly applied in, in, to our lives. So, now, in, uh, in John 4, or John uh, 1 and verse 4, rather, uh, the plural is used. He said, write we unto you. And at that time we said that this uh, was done to show John's association with and his agreement with the other apostles. But of course all the other apostles uh, are dead. John's the last one still alive. And uh, though they're all dead, their influence in the scripture that was given through them was preserved. But here, here in, in verse number one, John uses the singular. He says, write I unto you. And that's what he pretty much sticks with most of the rest of the epistle. Uh, this evidently stressed his personal relationship with the believers. Now, uh, uh, I might start talking even faster than I'm going now, but we're just going to go on as far as we can. They're imperative. We see their imperative. That ye sin not. 
this is the second purpose statement in John in writing this epistle. It is that his audience would not sin. And I think that he addressed them as my little children to, to assure them that though they might have sinned, and, and of course he, he, he already said, if we say we have not sinned, then we make God a liar. We've all sinned. But uh, though they might have sinned, that was not going to change their relationship with him. Because even when, even when children are rebellious, even when children tell their parents, I hate you, they're still the children. You know? And the parent, parents, parents don't usually, sometimes, I guess certain parents do, but most parents probably don't, when their children get mad, don't get their way and they say, I hate you. You know, the parents like, well, that's, that's very sad that you would say that. I love you. And he was still their spiritual dad. And even though he might have to rebuke them, that relationship, that love he had for them was not going to change. They were still his little children. And uh, I think every pastor needs to have a heart like that. And everybody who leaves this church, it grieves my heart. I, I weep for it when I'm alone in my office. And I pray that God would change their heart and bring them back here. That they might have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with God the Father and with His Son. And if they refuse to have right fellowship with us, they, are, they might go to another church, but they're never going to have the restored fellowship with God. They're never going to have it. If that relationship with a brother or sister is not right, they will never have the right relationship with their father. So a good dad is not going to stand by while his children are in error. Uh, this letter was given to prevent sin. It's interesting that the verbs used for sin in this passage are not the same as those that are used later in the epistle. Look, in, look real quickly in chapter 3 and verse 8. In chapter 3 and verse 8 it says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. Well, that's a strong statement, isn't it? How many of you have ever committed a sin? <laughs> How many of you have ever committed a sin after you got saved? Mm. Mm. He that committed sin is of the devil. Oh, okay. Um, that's pretty, you know, how do we reconcile that? That, that well, it, 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 at least in this we can, we can have a little bit of comfort that the, the error subjunctive, and I know you don't care what that means, but the error subjunctive means that you may not commit even a single act of sin. That's what the literal meaning is. But in John 3, 8, the meaning is he that keeps on committing sin, that keeps on doing it over and over and over again. Gnosticism tended towards antinomianism. Gnosticism claimed special knowledge that elevated its believers so that they were unaffected by sin in the ways that people without their special knowledge would. So, they could go ahead and divorce their wives and marry another one. It's okay. They could, they could live immoral, reprobate lives. They could lie. You know, they could do all of those things because they had this special knowledge. It was like their own private insurance, sin insurance. By the way, I heard a fundamentalist pastor preach a, a sermon. The title of his sermon was Sin Insurance. And in his sermon, which he read a verse in the Bible and then he 
gave a 40 minute long illustration about a pastor who won thousands of people to the, year, to the Lord every year. And he built a great big church and he preached in conferences all over America. But then one day he stumbled and fell. And he fooled around with another woman. And got up in heaven and said, I'm, that's it, I'm going to kill him. But Jesus, interceding at the right hand of the Father in heaven, said, oh, but Lord, he's, God, he's, look at how many people he's led to the Lord for me. Sin insurance. Just win souls. Then if you sin, God won't be mad at you because you led more people to the Lord than anybody else. And so uh, that, that is what Gnosticism, that's what Gnosticism uh, taught. And uh, their favorite verse is Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so uh, the, the idea then is that they gloried in making God's grace abound through their sin. And uh, uh, that's a pretty good example of the danger of taking the verse out of context. And God knows that we're not going to reach a place of sinless perfection in this life. Innocent yet to pray sinners. Amen? All right. Well, uh, we, we uh, should never let our guard down and uh, suppose.